The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Is anyone else cold? It's freezing in here, isn't it? I almost wore a short-sleeved shirt, and I thought, I bet it's going to be cold in that building. So, so um, I wasn't planning on being here, but the uh, teacher that Andrea had lined up was unable to make it. So, um, so I'm back for a third week, and. Um, For those of you who weren't here for the past two weeks, um, I I was basically starting a, down a road where I was talking about more um, uh, rather than even in Dharma terms, but more what it's like when we confront our own direct experience and begin to recognize what it's like within ourselves in the immediate moment of experience rather than to intellectualize the process. So um, so I'm going to veer this week and I'm going to talk a little bit more in classic terms um, uh, because there is, there is a way that we have to balance both approaches. Otherwise, it's, it's easy to go down one road and just completely get lost doing thinking about things. Or we <clears throat> go down the other road and we feel things so deeply um, that we just stop recognizing what it is that we're feeling and we get overwhelmed by that type of thing. So um, <clears throat> I thought I would talk about the Noble Eightfold Path this morning. And uh, it's <laughs> it, I, I like that it brings up smiles in people. Yeah, because this is something that we can um, always go back to and rest in. And it's, it becomes like a, a place of safety, a place of refuge. So um, I'm going to <clears throat> repeat probably or say, um, do a review, and I know that all of you here probably know all this already, but <clears throat> I think it, it's important to say what the, the actual path factors are as we begin the discussion about this. So um, <clears throat> the eight... Five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, I must have forgotten one here, but I, I'll go through the ones that I've got here. So um, it starts with right view or samaditi, and uh, right view in 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 the Buddhist uh, tradition here is. Uh, the understanding of suffering. So, um, and it's the understanding of the origin of suffering, it's the understanding of the cessation of suffering, and it's the understanding of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. In other words, right view is the Four Noble Truths. And, um, and what we've been talking about for the last two weeks is this, the direct experience of uh, suffering that's caused when we don't see what's really going on when we're ignorant. And if I were to ask how many people in this room think that they live in ignorance, it probably wouldn't get a lot of hands raised because it doesn't feel so good. And yet the whole premise of the Buddhist teaching is that our core problem is that we live in ignorance. We don't know what's really happening. And so we have reactions and um, habits of responding that just perpetuate this, this suffering, this ignorance. Ignorance is suffering. The next is uh, right intention. Um, and uh, this is the intention towards goodwill, the intention towards 
harmlessness, the intention towards simplification, renunciation, not thinking that we need all the things that um, we fill up our lives with, that are, not that things are wrong, but that when we default to distractions, we feed our ignorance and things become more and more obscure. The next factor is right speech, um, which is basically abstaining from wrong speech or false speech, slanderous speech, harsh, harsh speech, idle gossip, that type of thing, in the classic um, delivery of it. Right action would come, abstaining from killing, taking life, um, from stealing, from sexual misconduct. And you'll recognize in all of this the, the precepts that we all are familiar with, the five basic precepts that we're familiar with. The next is right livelihood, which is... Um, uh, <clears throat> which is described classically as the effort to, rest- uh, to uh, restrain defilements, abandon defilements, and to develop wholesome states and to maintain wholesome states. So when you hear talks about um, uh, uh, the suppression of defilements and the up- uprooting and abandonment of defilements and then to promote wholesome states and then to maintain wholesome states. This would fall under this category. Uh, right mindfulness is the mindfulness to com- uh, of contemplation of the body, of feelings, of mind, and of phenomena. So this is the cultivation and practice of right mindfulness. And uh, right con- concentration, sama samadhi, is uh, the states of deep concentration are the jhanas, first, second, third, and fourth. So this, this is what's considered, um, if we call it, sometimes it's referred to as right view, right intention. Sometimes it's, it's called wise view and wise intention. So um, the teachings of the Buddha um, aren't really like commandments or doctrines. They're not like... Um, beliefs about the origins of things and um, uh, they're more a message of deliverance from suffering. This is so important because um, most of us come to practice because at some level we understand that things are tough and that we're suffering in some way and each of us has our own story of suffering but the suffering underneath our stories is universal you know i know you know what suffering is i know what suffering is you know what suffering so we would tell a different story of suffering but there's a knowing of this quality of suffering and in in this particular it's, in Pali, it's referred to as as dukkha, and so um, this eightfold path that's given to us by the Buddha as the fourth noble truth is actually the way to practice. It's a path of practice to bring us out of this state of suffering. So, as you can see, this is more about thinking about it than about experiencing it. So I want you to bear that in mind as we talk about this and actually notice what you're feeling inside yourself while you're listening. You see, when... When we meditate, one of the skillful ways to meditate that I've found in my own practice is not to be so concerned with the content of what's going on, but more to focus, or not more to focus, but to bring, to cultivate an awareness of the nuances 
of change that are occurring within my meditation from moment to moment to moment. So I'll, I'll make that a little bit more pragmatic. When we drove up here this morning or walked over here this morning, we had a certain awareness of, of how we were feeling. Even if we weren't thinking about it very clearly, there's a little bit, you know, we're aware that cars are moving on the street and there's a lot of activity. And then we come in here and we sit down and it's quiet. And even if our mind is still busy and we're still out on the freeway, there's, on another level, there's a knowing of things quieting down and things just begin to quiet down. So rather than get caught in what was going on on the freeway and what we're thinking about and, and, you know, why aren't we, if we just notice that things are actually beginning to quiet, I mean, we've just, and so it's to plug into these these shifts, these nuances in experience that begin to reveal things to us um, <clears throat> that we can then check against the the noble eightfold path we can we can uh, monitor our own direct experience in relationship to whether the eightfold path has any relevance for us or not and remember how I started which is to say if we focus so much on what we're feeling and experiencing, it's easy to sort of go down that road so that we don't see how to uh, recognize what it is that we're feeling. So there's different, there's different, there's different ways that we need to, to practice here. So <clears throat> Bhikkhu Bodhi says that... Um, there are only two requirements for practice, and I love this. Do you, does anyone know what he, he says they are? Yes? No? Okay, I'm going to tell you. It's a big secret. Listen carefully. You're going to get a transmission here. To start and continue. That's the secret to liberation, to start and continue. And when we get lost, what do we do? Start and continue over and over and over. And so we do that, which is a practice, because it's so tempting to say, this isn't working. I should be doing something else. I should be, you know, I should be whatever. Someplace else doing something else. But if, if we just meet our experience as our experience and don't judge it and don't force and just this is the way that things are in this very moment, this is a, a quality of kindness which allows us to start and continue over and over and over again. Now, I'm not suggesting that you do things that aren't aren't skillful over and over and over again. But in terms of practice, if you can connect with your intention, if you can find what your intention is, then it's possible to use your intention as an anchor and a refuge that allows you to start and continue over and over and over again. So um, I want it... I think I, I'll mention this here. Um, so uh, I also teach this compassion course that Jennifer's going to be teaching here next week. I'm teaching it down in Los Altos right now, and at Stanford. And in the course, we we talk about this uh, circle of flight and return that happens in relationship to the arising of compassion. But it's a very useful um, it's a very useful model I find because it also is very um, 
reflective of what happens in our day-to-day experience and in our meditation experience. And it also points to the importance of intention as a refuge and an anchor. So we, if we have an intention, and we know what that intention is, and we take time to like think about that intention or just allow it to unfold in a natural way so that we can become familiar with it, so that we know what the territory is like. Again, when you are in direct contact with your, your deepest aspiration and your intention, there's a qualitative physiological experience that is important to begin to recognize. It's like when something feels right and you're in the zone you know what it's like to feel like you're in the zone where everything is just and you're not it's almost like you're not doing anything it's just happening through you have you had this experience yes we have all had this experience even if it's just a moment or two that type of thing but to really let your focus of awareness be on what that's like when that's happening and that so that then you know that you're in, in, you've connected with your intention. So we begin with the intention, and then the circle, if you can picture this in your mind, and it doesn't necessarily go always in a perfect the way it's being described, because life is never just black or white or clean. Um, <clears throat> but what happens is that the next thing on the circle is contact. So we make contact with a thought, an emotion, a mind state, a mood, something like that, you see? It can even be a physical contact. But contact happens. It may be like a, um, a signal from the limbic brain that something is happening. And then in our in our prefrontal cortex, we cognize this this signal and and then we decide this is good, this is bad, this is safe, this is unsafe, this is this or this is that, and these things just go back around in a circle and the next thing comes up, and we know it, and then the next thing comes. but sometimes things spin off right, and we can move then to what would be called like expansiveness, where things get bigger than they just originally seem. They get bigger. And this can be wonderful. This can open up into real spaciousness and, 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 a, and a quality of openness. Or it can take us to the edges of what's comfortable for us. And it can be really uncomfortable and scary. You see, things just get a little bit out of hand. Yes? The next thing on the circle, this is a circle of flight and return, how we get lost. The next thing on the circle is overwhelm. This, things have gotten so big that we can't handle it anymore. It's almost like a tsunami of emotions or thoughts or something over, overcome us and overwhelm us. And so there's this quality of overwhelm that that can happen. And in response to the overwhelm is a kind of like pushing, pushing against it. It's that resistance that I was talking about for the last two weeks, that place inside of us that knows something isn't right or that knows it is right and wants more of it. But that, it's, it's, it's that place and so if it's really uncomfortable, it's not uncommon for us to find ourselves moving towards distraction as a way to, to reestablish safety or to get away from things. So if we, if we find comfort in the refrigerator, we head to the refrigerator. If we need a beer, we get a beer or whatever it happens to be. We find a way to distract ourselves. And this, and this is another way that we get lost. Sometimes distraction doesn't work. It's so big that it doesn't work, right? 
And another way that we deal with it is that we just go unconscious. So have you ever noticed that sometimes you sit down to meditate and you just suddenly find yourself doing whiplash zazen? You're just falling asleep. It happens to everyone. See? So I, I want to be careful because falling asleep in meditation could just simply mean you're tired and you need to take a nap or you need to get some rest. But it's worth looking at because it can also be a way that you don't want to be with your experience. And sometimes you don't even know what the experience is that you don't want to be with. But it's worth taking a look at. So we go unconscious. The next thing on the circle as we're moving down is that we totally, uh, it's total avoidance and rejection of what's happening. I don't want anything to do with this and this isn't happening to me. Even though it is happening to me, this isn't happening to me. So I just shut down. We can try that, right? It doesn't, it doesn't always work. And, and how do you think you're feeling as you go along this circle? Can, pardon me? See? So just check in. Even as I'm describing it, I can feel, I can feel it building up inside of me, this feeling of not being very happy or comfortable with what is unfolding. You see? And then I say, the hell with it. All of this practice, all this meditation, all these loving kindness phrases, this is all too cheesy for me. It doesn't, it's so fake. And then I just go numb. I just literally go numb. I just close off, and that's the end of it. Boom, that's the end of it. And then we come back to our intention. And when we can reconnect with our intention, we can have, we can reconnect with a refuge and an anchor that can put us back in a normal looping of life. So this is really useful because it allows us to forgive ourselves for what we think shouldn't be happening. We think we shouldn't be falling asleep when we meditate, or we think we shouldn't ever be distracted when in fact we are distracted, you see? So it's all about learning to recognize the truth of our experience, being with that in an honest way, and knowing how to skillfully recenter yourself so that you can start and continue once again. Does that make sense? Now, that's a very heady way of describing an experience, but if you can just track your own feeling as you go around the circle and notice what you felt like, you were having a direct experience. I was having a direct experience. You know, I'm so glad I'm through the circle because <laughs> I, can, I can put it put it aside now and get on. Get on. This, this dukkha business is it's a little bit too much here. So, so um, let's go back to um, the eight path factors and just say that that these factors, right view, right intention, right livelihood, all of these factors, right concentration, uh, they're all accessible to us at any time. And uh, they're mental components, really, which we can establish in the mind simply through effort and, and a, uh, like a resolve, a determination kind of thing. And so... How do you work with them? Well, to begin, we have to examine and correct our views and clarify our intentions. We have to know what it is 
that's important to us, what it is that we want, you see, and then decide whether this is right or not. And if it's not right, if we actually are aspiring for something that's not going to lead us to real happiness, then we can adjust our view and say, I wonder what will lead us to real happiness. So there's like hedonic happiness and eudonic happiness. Hedonic happiness is that, you know, I want the fanciest BMW in the showroom, and if I get it, I'm going to be really happy for a while. And eudonic happiness is the happiness that comes when you do something kind for someone and you can appreciate the goodness of that act and that quality of goodness within yourself. That's lasting, sustainable happiness. So, again, important to know how to work with these things. So, uh, we begin by looking at our views, correcting them if possible, um, and clarifying our intentions. And then... um, we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to literally, I mean, it's funny to use this language, but we have to purify our, contact, our conduct, which means simply that we have to you know, watch the way that we talk, watch the way that we use our language, watch the way that we interact with people. You see, there's, I mean, we can do tremendous good or tremendous harm language. Language is really powerful. And so we just have to be a little bit more attentive. We have to ask ourselves, do I really need to say this? Does this really need to be, to be said? And if it does, how is the best way that I can say it? I mean, we don't always stop and think about this with, before we talk. But we can begin to look at speech in this way. One of, for those of you who do uh, silent retreats, you get to really have a relationship with speech that we don't in our normal day-to-day life because we just go blabbing on for, from morning until night. But when you're in silence for a day or two or a week or two or a month or two or a year or two, speech is something that comes to the fore. And I can, I can remember after I sat in my first first month-long retreat. And at the end of the retreat, the teachers were going to have us begin to break silence before the retreat ended. So it wouldn't be like we were in silence for a month and then suddenly we're in the safe way and going crazy or something. So I remember how painful it was to have the speech broken because the silence was became so delicious. It just became, I don't even know how to talk about it uh, other than to say it was delicious. But when the silence was broken and people started talking to one another, I just got the sense of what it's like when you make small talk. Nothing's wrong with small talk, is it? But how easy it is to then like, well, what do you do and where do you live and where do you come in? And then suddenly you're just like compartmentalizing people and yourself and you get caught up in this whole thing of how you use speech to become a person, become a personality, become something that people will recognize as you. It's really it's, it's fascinating. And so speech can be used for tremendous good or it can, it can really hurt or, and sting. And, um, <clears throat> and then building on this foundation, you, we move into the, uh, the other factors, which is to apply energy and mindfulness to the cu- uh, cultivation of, of meditation or concentration concentration, in this case, right, concentration. So <clears throat> the, the Eightfold Path is generally seen in sort of three categories, and 
it's like the right view, right intention category, the right livelihood category, and then the right um, uh, concentration or meditation, cultivating the mind. So, so, <clears throat> so the cornerstone of the Buddhist teaching is suffering. And, and I remember when I first came upon a book of, uh, of Buddhism quite some years ago, there weren't so many books out during that time, and I opened it up and it's like, what is this? I'm going to <laughs> get involved with some religion that's talking about suffering. I have enough suffering in my life. Put that book back. I want, I want somebody to touch me and make this all go away. So, the problem of life is suffering. This is the cornerstone of the Buddhist teaching. And the Four Noble Truths declare that life is literally inseparably tied to suffering. This is what the Buddha gave us. And, and he didn't just declare that life is suffering. It's not like life is suffering, but suffering exists in life. That's an important clarification. But everything that the Buddha taught, um, and I, I catch myself saying that as though I actually know what the Buddha taught, but the Buddha's teachings are all about suffering and how to end suffering. They're not based in metaphysical pursuits. None of that is of, he, he, if I've understood, he didn't really address that in his teaching. He only taught what would bring suffering to an end. He taught that there was suffering, that there's a cause to suffering, we can learn how to identify the causes of suffering. We can take delight and refuge in the fact that the suffering can end. And then he gave us the way for suffering to end. So <clears throat> in order for suffering to ignite some sort of fire in us, some sort of passion to awaken, um, it has to we have to actually get it in a direct way. We can't just dance around suffering. We can't deny suffering. We have to actually experience suffering and be willing to meet the suffering. And when we do, even if it's only for a moment or two, sometimes that direct contact with our experience is enough to awaken this quest in us. At some point, I'm guessing, in order for you to be in this room, at some point, you touched something and then said, there's got to be a way out. There must be some way out. There must be some, it can't just be this. And this is what brings most people to practice. So <clears throat> when this insight awakens in us, just as I said, even if it's only for a moment, it can pre precipitate a profound personal crisis. And this crisis is enough to make us act, to get us to do something. It's sort of like if you were thinking of a person who had <clears throat> you know, a problem with addictions. And at a certain point, they finally hit the bottom and they say I got a problem see and until they until that moment of recognition that there is a problem so this meeting it with honesty saying wow this is suffering that's that moment even if it only lasts a second or two can be enough to set us on the path so um, <clears throat> it's I, I, I'm going to read this quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi because I love it. He says, it's precisely at that point when all escape routes are blocked that we're ready to seek a way to bring our disquietude to an end. A deeper reality beckons us. We have heard the call of more stable, more authentic happiness, 
And until we arrive at our destination, we can no longer rest content. So basically, we can't just accept the fact that we're living in ignorance any longer. We, we have to do something about it because there's no, there's no alternative, actually. So when, and this is when actually in this moment when the conditions are actually ripening in our own life experience to do something, to take action. So while it seems like things are going in the wrong direction, it's almost as though life has brought us the gift of saying, wake up, here's your chance. I've often <clears throat> looked back, I've lived long enough to be able to look back over my life and see different times in my life where things were just, the writing was on the wall. You need to do something here. You just need to take, you need to do something. And I didn't do it. I, I just, I don't know, I didn't recognize it or whatever. But pig-headed stubbornness, ignorance, I didn't do it. And then what happened? Life just came and cleaned house. It took it out of my hands. If you won't do it, it'll be done for you. And just, you know, it seemed to destroy Everything that I had built, everything that I thought was true and real and solid, all gone. And I, and I did that more than once in my lifetime, you see. So eventually, some people like me are slow learners, but eventually you begin to get the idea. So when the conditions are ripe, you stumble upon the path of teaching, a way of awakening. And then it's your good karma if you, (laughs) I'll go out on a limb here and say, it is your good karma if you come to a path like this, because this is a path that's truly transformative. If If you undertake it, even if you don't know what the hell you're doing, it doesn't make any difference. The path itself, the practice itself, has a way of course correcting for us. You know, if we do things that are wrong, we're going to find out that they're wrong eventually. You could say maybe life is like this, but life is like that. Life doesn't always give us the way out. It takes things away from us, but it doesn't always give us the way out. And this path of practice really does give us the way out. So... I'm sitting here freezing. It's so, it's so cold in this room. <laughs> oh, you're wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so, if we're going to follow any path to its goal, we really have to have some level of confidence and trust that this is a legitimate path. Otherwise, what's the point? We're just, we're just chasing another dream, so to speak. And so we have to look at the efficacy of the Noble Eightfold Path and decide for ourselves whether this is a legitimate path. So what criteria might we use to do this? That's a rhetorical question, so I'm going to answer it here. So, again, this is another way to describe the Four Noble Truths. Does the teaching path give us a full and accurate picture of the all-pervasive range and nature of suffering? Does the path let us know what this suffering is like? Does it give us a correct analysis of the causes of this suffering? Does it tell us why we suffer? And does it offer teachings that remove 
the suffering at its source. That's not just looking at the symptoms of suffering and making us feel more comfortable and life is going to be okay, but the root of the cause of the suffering hasn't been addressed. Does the path do that? Yes, it does. And does it give us a clear roadmap of the method to cut off the suffering and eradicate its causes? So in this scenario, the Eightfold Path really meets this criteria. It really does let us know clearly the full, all-pervasive nature of suffering and how it shows up in, its, in our lives. It allows us to see what is causing our suffering, to see the, the very root of, of the suffering. It shows us that there is a way to end the suffering, and it gives us a path of practice to do that. It's almost a medical model. Um, so... <clears throat> As we all know, the dukkha that, that we talk about is not, um, it's not just big stuff. It's just everything that causes us to resist the moment of our experience. Every little inconvenience, every little disappointment, dissatisfaction, every time someone says t- something to us and we feel judged or we feel, you know, hurt or reactive in some way. This is dukkha. So a few years ago, I had a quite serious back surgery, and I had been in a lot of um, pain leading up to the surgery and and after the surgery too. But um, people would say, they would come and they would tell me that they had back problems too. And then they would say, oh, but my pain is nothing like your pain, right? And I, I heard that pretty soon. It really annoyed me. <laughs> said, well, how do you know what kind of pain I have and why is your pain less important than my pain? You know, this is like, it's a way that we don't validate our own experience. It's a way that we just, diminish ourselves. It's a way of being unkind to ourselves. This constant comparison, comparing, is dukkha. So this, this dukkha shows up in, it's just all pervasive. So <clears throat> in the classical teachings, dukkha appears in the events of birth, aging, and death, It arises in the conditions associated with sickness, accidents, injuries, in hunger, in thirst. It shows up in our reactivity to disagreeable situations and events, in sorrow, anger, frustration, fear aroused by painful sensations, my pain, your pain, by unpleasant encounters, by the failure to get what we want or the fear associated with losing the happiness that we do have. All of these things are ways that dukkha shows up. So our lives are really, for the most part, strung out between the thirst for pleasure and the fear of pain. Think about that. You know, this is, this is the story of our life. Some, <laughs> somewhere in between... <laughs> In, in this story, we create a me. And then we believe that that's who we are. You see, again, this is all very heady description, but if feel into what it feels like, what it evokes, if anything, within you. It might evoke a numbness. Ah, I don't want to go there. <laughs> this is too uncomfortable. So, we run after pleasure and we run away from pain. That's just the story of life. And in the end, what happens? We're going to have a 
day long on it pretty soon. We die. That's what happens. In the end, we die. And when we die, we have to let go of all the identities we spent our entire life building. We can't take them with us, right? We have to leave behind everything and everyone that we hold precious and dear. Sad, but it's true. We have to do it. And all that we thought we were, it just slips away. So what are we going to do about this? Is there anything that can be done? <clears throat> this, is, this is one of the things that helps us to come into right view. When we can see that this is what we're doing, that we're building identities and that we're just wandering between pleasure and pain and that we're running after things and that we're so on and so forth, we begin to see that none of this is permanent, that it's all changing. It's just constantly in flux. No matter how much we try to hold on, there's nothing that we can hold on to. There's nothing solid or permanent that's reliable. You see? It's all hedonic in a way. So any kind of sustainability is... Um, is <laughs> almost a lost cause in, in, in relationship to that. So um, the three most basic causes of dukkha um, are greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's loba, dosa, and moha are the Pali terms for it. So greed would be... Um, self-centered desire, the desire for pleasure and possessions, the desire to survive, survival, the urge to reinforce the sense of ego with power and status and prestige. All of these would be associated with greed. You see, Aversion is the response to negativity or a rejection and irritation, a condemnation, hatred, anger, enmity. All of that would be aversion. And delusion is basically um, mental darkness. It's just the insensitivity that blocks out our ability to see clearly. And all of this comes from ignorance. It all arises out of ignorance, and it returns to ignorance, too. In the classic teaching. Also, I would say there's a whole constellation of other defilements that show up out of this greed, hatred, and illusion. Things like conceit, jealousy, lethargy, arrogance, ambition, all of these things are, are in the constellation of other arisings of these things. And um, the dukkha takes the form in our own lived experience of pain and sorrow, of fear and discontent, um, and just the aimless drifting through our lives. We don't even know what we're doing. We're just moving from event to event to event, and it just seems to go on endlessly. So at the source of this is, is ignorance, this talk is about two hours long, and <laughs> I've got five minutes, so I'm going to have to find. We'll try to um, speed this thing up. So, what cuts off the causes of suffering? And um, ignorance is really not knowing things as they really are. It's that simple. And so as we practice mindfulness, we're practicing the skill to recognize what's really happening when it's happening. You see? So um, I was teaching a class last night, and we started the meditation. It was a guided meditation, and 
some people were coming in late and it was in a classroom down at Stanford and some people were coming in late and some of the meditators were opening their eyes to see what was happening and so on and so forth. So I use this as an example because what was happening when people opened the door and walked in was sound. End of story. That's all that was happening. But this signal comes up. It's cocked. Who's coming in late? Why are they coming in late? Don't they know that the class begins early? <laughs> etc. etc. Et Don't they know this disturbs my meditation? And so on and so forth. What was happening? Sound. And when you can see that sound was happening, you can allow all those other thoughts because then you see those other thoughts are just happening too. You don't, you don't have to deny anything on this circle. You can let that all happen. You just see it clearly. See, when you can begin to see it clearly, you're free. That's the, and the freedom, that's the beginning of a transformation. But it's to see things clearly. You don't have to deny anything in your meditation experience or your life experience. You just have to know what's, what's going on in order to begin to wake up. So <clears throat> when that happens, that's really the beginning of wisdom. That's what wisdom is. When, when you can see things as they really are, you're beginning to <clears throat> operate from a zone of wisdom. And sometimes this comes as just a, a momentary glimpse, a momentary insight, but it does happen. So the Buddha teaches us that wisdom can be cultivated and he shows us through the example of his own life that wisdom arises through a set of circumstances which we all have the power to develop. And these, these factors, these path factors, right for you, intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration, these this path of practice the Buddha gave to us as the way to liberation, the way to be liberated. And it's called the, the middle way, the Majjhima Patipada, Pada, excuse me, Patipada, the Noble Eightfold Path is the way to liberation. So as I began this talk, I'm going to wrap it up and I'm going to ask you a question. What are the two things required to be liberated? To start and continue. So may you all <laughs> start and continue over and over and over again until you attain full liberation. And may you share it with all your loved ones in all the world. So thank you for coming and listening to the Dhamma this morning.